This week on Policy, Guns and Money, Anastasia Kapetis speaks to Russia expert Professor James Goldgeier about the arrest of Navalny in Russia and the response from the United States and Europe. Uh, you know, there's a lot there's a lot going on that's, that's not good, uh, both in Russia and in U.S.-Russia relations. Lisa Sharland speaks to Genevieve Feely about the barriers and opportunities for Pacific Island contributions to UN peacekeeping operations. You have countries who want to give back to the international community and they see it as a point of pride to be able to contribute to something like UN peacekeeping and demonstrate that to the international community. And Michael Shoebridge and Charlie Lyons-Jones discuss the impact of ideology on Chinese domestic and foreign policy. We might have forgotten about ideology once the Soviet Union was defeated at the end of the Cold War, but the Chinese Communist Party most certainly didn't. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Whilst protests have eased in Russia for now, protesters have shifted focus to the country's September parliamentary elections, signalling that the movement is here for the long haul. Anastasia Capetta speaks with James Goldgeier, professor at American University and the Robert Bosch Senior Visiting Fellow at the Brookings Institution. They discuss the Biden administration's response to Navalny's arrest and the potential for a unified US and EU response to a resurgent Russia. Welcome again um, to, to ASPE. I'm very happy to have you here. Just to get right into it um, immediately, what we want to talk about today is how the Biden administration is going to respond to Russia in terms of not just the Navalny case, but also um, to years of, of Russian malign activity. What is the mood in the Biden cabinet? Well, I mean, I, obviously I can't speak for anybody in the administration since I'm not in there, but, um, but I think the most important thing to note is that there are no illusions about the US-Russia relationship. This is a very different start to an administ- a US administration than we've seen in, t- in some time. If you go back to the Bill Clinton administration, the George W. Bush administration, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, they each came into office believing and having high hopes that there would be better U.S.-Russia relations and that they could launch uh, a better set of U.S.-Russia relations. And they each ended their time in office with those hopes pretty much dashed. <laughs> Profoundly disappointed. Profoundly disappointed. So the good news is there are no illusions this time. Nobody, so, nobody, so no reset this time around. No right. Nobody's, nobody's coming in thinking, oh, we're going to really improve U.S.-Russia relations. So, you know, I think they're, they're very realistic about the challenges. Uh, they recognize Putin's uh, antipathy toward the West. Um, and uh, there, there are just very few opportunities to generate better U.S.-Russia relations. And of course, you know, we've seen this series of events, the, the poisoning and then the arrest of Alexei Navalny, uh, the reaction to the peaceful protesters in Russia, the solar winds hack in the United States, the continued election interference. Uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on that's, that's not good, uh, both in Russia and in U.S.-Russia relations. So when I look at the pundit sphere um, in Washington at the moment, there seems to be a range of, slightly different range of views on Russia. Um, For example, yesterday in the New York Times, Tom Friedman was saying Russia's like an annoying boyfriend that the US is trying to break up with. We really don't care about them anymore, um, but they keep on trying to get our attention. For others like um, Ambassador McFall, who was running in foreign affairs the other day, saying, actually, no, Russia is is a big threat. We just don't really understand or appreciate the the nature of the grey zone threat 
that Russia presents. So we need to act very strongly against Russia. And then there's people like um, Daniel Fried who uh, basically argue we just need to sort of do business as usual with Russia. So amongst that, that sort of gamut of opinion, who do you think has it right? Well, I think we I think we do need to worry about Russia. It, uh, you know, the, the sort of the notion that's annoying boyfriend, I, I think, you know, that, that kind of notion that it doesn't matter that much usually starts with this point that Russia uh, is is weak and, you know, it really can't do that much to harm the West. And I think that really is comparing Russia to the Soviet Union of the 1970s and basically looking at how much weaker Russia is than the Soviet Union at the, as, when it was at the height of its superpowerdom. But, you know, compare Russia to what it was in the 1990s. It's much stronger than it was in the 1990s. It's much more capable of of acting in its neighborhood. It's more capable of acting in the Middle East. It's more capable of, of undermining Western institutions, spreading disinformation successfully. So I think that Russia does pose a, a threat. It's not the great power that China has become and will continue to become. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not significant. And it is opposed to Western interests. So I think, you know, that we need to do something about it. What I what I think we're seeing from the Biden administration so far, and this was particularly the case with the phone call between President Biden and President Putin after the inauguration, was, you know, Joe Biden basically saying, we're going to extend the New START treaty. So we're, we want to do the arms control. But we have these other issues that are real problems. And, you know, I, I'm not going to shy away from them. And we're going to talk about the, the Navalny poisoning and arrest. We're going to talk about the continued conflict in Ukraine. We're not going to stand for Russia, you know, putting bounties on, on U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And so I think you saw a real, you know, clear-eyed assessment of the need to cooperate with Russia, particularly on, on nuclear issues, but the need to push back in other areas. So there's a real contrast to the EU ambassador's um, chat with Lavrov um, this week. And I want to get back to the Europeans. But first, I just want to ask you, Navalny supporters um, across the world are calling for a very, very tough sanctions package, um, but that also goes after enablers, Western enablers. So essentially what they want is to shut down the ability of Russian oligarchs and Putin's cronies to be able to launder money and enjoy that money in the West. Is that that will involve a whole of government law enforcement effort, um, you know, very big, very coordinated stuff. Do you think that is possible? I, I think it is possible, and I think that what we the sanctions are the the sort of the go-to tool uh, because you know you're you're avoiding military force, which is is not uh, really in the cards on this or other issues with respect to Russia. And it's something you can do that shows that you're taking action. There has been, of course, a question as to how useful the sanctions are. I, I think you have to see them play out over a longer period of time uh, to assess their value. But, you know, the goal of sanctions is to basically say to the other side, if you continue down this path, you're going to pay a price for it. And I, I think what the, what the message really is directed and needs to be directed even more and more to those around Putin 
who have benefited from being able to have their money sloshing around in the West and they can have been able to travel in the West or certainly been able to send their kids to school at universities in the, in the West. And they need to be restricted more and more. I mean, it should be the case that they really find that, in fact, they may have a lot of money that they've made by being close to Putin, uh, but they don't have places where they can spend it. And, uh, you know, will that be enough to put, you know, Putin's not just going to give this up. <laughs> but, you know, what, what you're looking to sort of create incentives for people within Russia to start looking for other options uh, and to try to do what you can to crack the monolith a little bit. So for people like who are close uh, to the Biden administration in terms of foreign policy, people like Elizabeth Economy, Samantha Powers, frame this as we don't just need to worry about, you know, Russian grace own stuff, um, but we also need to worry about this idea that Russia represents a resurgent authoritarianism around the world. Um, and so it's not just to deter Putin from grey zone activities, but to show our own populations, to, to show dem democracies across the world that we're standing up for values. This is a, you know, a civilizational conflict. Is that the right approach? Is that useful? You know, there's clearly, I mean, we, we, we do seek to govern ourselves differently in a democracy than authoritarian regimes seek. And there's no question that regimes like Putin's Russia and Xi Jinping's China have seen themselves as leading regimes that they see as in opposition to the West and seek to undermine the effort of the of the major democracies to to promote democracy and the rule of law. The real question is, can our countries show that they can govern themselves effectively as democracies and that they can deliver for their citizens? You know, in the United States, we have had this real battle recently with authoritarian forces within the U.S., uh, groups that don't favor democracy in the U.S., uh, sought to overturn a free and fair election. And, uh, you know, that has to be addressed. And we need to strengthen democracy here in the United States. And I think we will see a Biden administration that continues to talk about the importance of democracy in the world, the importance of respecting the rule of law, respect for human rights, uh, and that is going to have to go hand in hand with dealing with issues internally. You know, as long as the United States continues to have, you know, continues to have the systemic racism in the U.S. to the extent that it does, that's a problem. To, as long as there are significant inequalities, that's a problem. What, what leaders like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping want to say to their citizens is, look at a country like the United States. Can't even govern itself. I mean, why would you want to live in a country like that? Joe Biden's been talking about how it's not just, uh, you know, leading by the example of our power, but the power of our example. And, you know, it's a phrase that's been used uh, before. But unless the United States and the other major democracies demonstrate the virtues and the values of democracy for actually providing for citizens, it that's going to I mean, if they can't do that, then the authoritarian countries are going to uh, continue to amass support. So basically, this just needs to start at home. Definitely needs to start at home. And, you know, I've called for uh, a democracy summit in the United States dealing with domestic issues. Joe Biden has called for a, a summit for democracy uh, to bring countries from other parts of the world together 
uh, in support of democracy. And, you know, that some version of that could potentially be important down the road. I, I think the first thing for the United States is to is to address the democracy issues in the United States. In the United States first. Can we just move quickly to Europe? Because again, um, some commentary has kind of said the Nirvana case is an early test for uh, a renewal of transatlantic ties and coordinated action um, against adversaries. Um, and at the, at the same time, uh, you know, the view from Europe about Navalny and what to do about it has been pretty muted. Um, they said they'd see what, what what would happen after sentencing. Sentencing has happened. Uh, the EU foreign minister went over, as we've just mentioned, to have a chat to Lavrov. And really that was about reaffirming uh, uh, essentially uh, the status quo in, uh, in a sense. Angela Merkel seems to have said to Biden, we're happy to talk about Russia, but we uh, are adamant that Nord Stream 2 is going to go ahead, which obviously, you know, gives uh, Russia a strategic advantage in terms, terms of energy politics into Europe. What are the prospects of uh, building, if you like, um, a consensus around Russia between the EU and, and, and uh, the US? Well, I think the experience of Mr. Burrell from the EU with Lavrov uh, will, is a reminder of how important it is for the EU to work with the United States on this because, you know, he basically got uh, dismissed. Uh, <laughs> he did get pretty uh, humiliated. He was pretty humiliated and, you know, the Chinese then started piling on. And I, I think, you know, it, the, the EU can't deal with this, these issues by itself as, as big and important, as wealthy as it is. Joe Biden is committed to transatlantic relations. Joe Biden is the most committed transatlanticist president since George H.W. Bush. I mean, that you know, it, it's something that he's lived his career. Uh, it means a lot to him to to work with our European allies. Uh, I think it means a lot to him to work with our allies in the Asia Pacific as well. And you know, he wants to return to. To when that was important, which it had not been in the previous four years. So I think the EU has every incentive to want to try to work with Joe Biden uh, on this. And, and given the ability of Russia to interfere in the domestic politics of countries in Europe, just as they have in the United States, uh, the EU should have an incentive to work with the US. That's one thing I find quite interesting looking at European politics and, for example, the fact that the National Front in, in France has been the recipient of an 11 million euro loan from Russian entities uh, and that uh, Alternative for Deutschland in Germany talks again openly about being very pro-Russia and its, and its uh, uh, Russian contacts. Um, and yet... There does seem to be a sense, at least coming from, you know, Merkel and Macron, is like we have this under control. You know, Russian disinformation is filling our information pipelines, but, you know, it's not as bad as in the US. And we understand Russia. We have a closer proximity to Russia. Um, we're more sophisticated about Russia. Um, is this going to change, do you think? Well, I think I think the, the Biden administration is going to do so much outreach to Europe. Yeah. That I, I think there will be, I think there will be change. Um, you know, it's fine if there are differences of opinion. I, I think that the healthiest thing would be if the U.S. and Europe really started to have much deeper conversations than they've had in the last four years. And they don't always have to agree. It's okay if they disagree. Uh, friends can disagree. Uh, and, you know, 
I think the U.S. should be listening to the European point of view. Uh, Chancellor Merkel, uh, President Macron, I mean, these, these are individuals who know Russia well, uh, have, have interacted with Putin uh, quite a bit. And the United States should be listening to their perspective and, and should also be giving them the, the U.S. perspective. And hopefully we'll all come out in a better place for it. Uh, there's obviously a lot of work to do. And you know, we're, we're still in the early weeks of the Biden. Yeah, it's early days indeed. One last question. What do you think that Putin wants for, from a Biden administration? What's he working towards, do you think? Well, you know, the thing that Putin is most concerned about, we've just seen it in recent weeks, he's concerned about his hold on power. And and even, you know, going through the whole uh, constitutional uh, processes he went through last year in Russia to set himself up to be able to stay in power till 2036, you know, he knows that, that even though he controls the security apparatus in Russia and it's hard for anybody to gain traction, uh, he fears um, the kind of alternative that somebody like Navalny provides, certainly the way in which Navalny gained so much traction with the, the video that he put out, the Putin's palace video. Uh, clearly the Kremlin's response showed that they are unhappy about that and the fact that you know millions of Russians have, have watched the video and, and see the, you know, the corruption. <laughs> and the extraordinary bad taste. As well. I mean, yes, right. But I mean, bad taste plus corruption is not a great, <laughs> not a great combination. And you know, the thing is, Putin sees all this. I mean, he's seen it through the color revolutions over the years, and the protests in Russia, and now Navalny. You know, he sees all this as sort of CIA plots to bring him down. He doesn't seem to really believe that these are simply independent. Uh, movements coming from below within Russia. And I think what he most fears is is the potential for a United States that interferes in Russia. Yeah. Um, um, I, did see, uh, just, I, I just wanted to get a quick comment. I did see a, 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 some commentary on Twitter along the lines of the SolarWinds attack, the cyber attack um, that was discovered at least um, before Christmas last year, uh, was Putin's way of, of reaching out and saying, let's do a deal on interference in each other's political systems. Do you, do you give any any credence to that 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 line on on the solar winds winds attack? Well, he, he, this is something he's floated before. I mean, he he's floated this in previous uh, previous years. He's floated the idea about why don't we come to a deal? You know, you don't interfere with us, yeah. and we won't interfere with you. And the problem is uh, hard to enforce. Yeah. Uh, hard to you know attributions of attacks are are rather difficult. Uh, I don't. I don't really see it as something that the Biden administration would pursue, but yeah. it's clearly been something that the Putin regime has proposed previously. And so, uh, you know, whether or not they're serious about it, uh, I think they'll certainly look for any way they can to limit what they see as Western and especially U.S. interference in Russia, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's real or imagined. Thank you very much, James. On that note, we'll have to leave it there. Um, but again, thanks for a really interesting conversation uh, about what to do about Russia. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Amidst the latest developments in the Pacific and the challenges it creates for regional cooperation, Lisa Sharland is joined by former researcher Genevieve Feely to discuss their research report undertaken in partnership with the Australian Civil Military Centre, which maps the contributions from Pacific countries to UN peacekeeping operations. They discuss some of the reasons for contribution, 
and the barriers and opportunities to continuing these important contributions to peacekeeping. Jen, welcome back to Aspie. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me back. So I thought originally when we were going to have a bit of a chat on the podcast today, we were going to talk about the report that we launched towards the end of last year on mapping Pacific contributions to to UN peacekeeping. But we'd be remiss, of course, not to, to briefly mention that there have been some really critical developments that have taken place in the region only just this week. Um, there's been discussions and, and the election, of course, of a new Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, earlier this week, the former Prime Minister of the Cook Islands was elected in a vote of nine to eight among the members of the Pacific Islands Forum. However, this was a surprise to Micronesian members who felt their candidate should have been appointed to the role in a rotating arrangement. And we've consequently seen this week that the leaders of the Micronesian nations, Kiribati, Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru and Palau, uh, have initiated proceedings to leave the forum. And this has prompted a discussion around what does that cooperation look like in the region? Uh, how does the region work together to cooperate some of the challenges that they're likely to be facing in the decades ahead? And I think we can expect to see this discussion continue. And of course, it's going to be on the minds of many working um, in the foreign policy space in Australia, New Zealand and elsewhere in the region at the moment. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a clunky segue, but I, I think it prompted an important conversation around sort of what what have we seen in the region in the past when it comes to cooperation on, on some issues that they faced, um, particularly around security? And of course, this was one of the issues that we were looking at a little bit in, in the report that we developed. And I think one of the things that really struck me is that the Pacific is uh, well understood in terms of uh, having been a host of a number of, of different peace operations. We've had Ramsey, we've had several missions in Timor-Leste. But what really struck me about our research was perhaps that it's not as well understood that the region has actually contributed quite substantively to global missions um, under the UN umbrella over the last 40 years. In fact, it's been more than 30 peace operations that countries in the region have contributed to. And that's when you don't take into account necessarily contribute contributions from Australia and New Zealand. So I thought I might start there, Jen, and, and I'd be interested in, in your thoughts based on our research about what you thought about some of the motivations and, and rationales for countries in the region contributing to UN peacekeeping. I think what was interesting is that we identified five factors from memory um, about the kind of Pacific Islands engagement. And there's been a fair bit of research done before on rationales to contributing um, by peacekeeping researchers. And our findings lined up quite closely with theirs. And so we looked at, particularly for the Pacific, supporting conflict-affected countries, gaining operational experience, financial incentives, political and cultural links, and national pride. And I think um, starting with the first one, which was supporting conflict-affected countries, I think this is a big one for the Pacific. You have countries like Timor-Leste who were both the host of a mission and now, and now are contributing to missions and are interested in increasing their contributions. But you also have them a part of these multilateral organisations like the G7+, Plus, which ex explicit purpose is to support conflict-affected countries and do fragile to fragile cooperation. So I think that is a driving factor and you also see that one with the Solomon Islands, which was obviously a big um, push for the Pacific and I think a real moment of pride for them in helping one of their fellow countries get out of um, quite a bad way. And so then we also turned to kind of gaining operational experience and I think this was a really, really big one for when we were researching. 
um, because a lot of these countries, uh, and as we talk about in the report, a lot of them don't have militaries per se, but they have quite um, substantial police forces. And a lot of these are still professionalising and they see peacekeeping as a way of professionalising their force and le- like learning how to gain new skills that they wouldn't necessarily get just doing domestic policing. Um, and then we turn to financial incentives, which I think is one that dominates the conversation for like contrib- for, for rationales for contributing, right? So you have countries um, like Fiji where it's that's seen as one of their main motivators and something we really could never tell during our research or it's really difficult to figure out is whether countries actually are profiting from peacekeeping or not or able to make it kind of a sustainable financial um, decision for their, you know, foreign policy. And I guess this comes up and we can talk about it in a bit if you'd like about Vanuatu recently saying they would like to restart their contributions for kind of the idea of profiting from peacekeeping. And then kind of turning to political and cultural links, I think this was really about kind of language as well. So you had countries um, like Timor who would go off to Lusophone countries like uh, Guinea-Bissau and deployed because they spoke Portuguese and this was also big for Vanuatu. They've gone to an, an amazing amount of missions because they're Francophone speaking. Um, so I think that one and I think the last one that comes into it is um, national pride. So you have countries who want to give back to the international community and they see it as a point of pride to be able to contribute to something like UN peacekeeping and demonstrate that to the international community. So they're kind of, I think, the major motivating factors, but there are a lot of challenges and barriers. And I think that they're the really the next step of our report is identifying which ones apply to which country. And I'd be interested for you if you could like kind of maybe run through the big challenges and barriers that we found. Well, I might start with what you said there, Jen, around um, finances in terms of being an incentive, because you're, you're quite right. There there has been a bit of a discussion in the region. And I, th- I think from memory, we've recently heard from the acting commander of the Vanuatu Mobile Force um, regarding sort of some of the incentives that might be presented um, by the reimbursement scheme that is in place for peacekeeping missions. And without going into the detail about that, I, I think the flip side of that discussion, of course, is uh, what is required in countries to actually sustain a contribution to UN peacekeeping. Um, for the benefit of, of those listening, as part of our research, we, we undertook uh, we, a series of interviews in um, six of the seven case study countries that we did um, before COVID hit and then undertook a lot of uh, interviews virtually. And one of the things that sort of really came out was trying to understand what some of the impediments are to countries contributing because we really did see there was a desire to remain engaged for those countries that have perhaps stopped for various reasons or been unable to contribute. Uh, And there was a sort of a desire for those that are contributing to look perhaps at, at ways they could diversify their contributions. And we see with with Fiji, which is sort of a a bit of a standalone country in terms of a case study because they do contribute military contingents, they do contribute a number of police and even corrections officers, whereas for most other countries in the region, it has sort of been these sort of ones and twos of personnel that have been deploying, whether they be individual police officers or uh, military personnel that have deployed on missions. So there's a very sort of different context there, but there was a discussion in terms of our research, and you'll recall this, uh, around whether countries had the capability to be deploying more personnel in in some of those contingents. And I think one of the real barriers to that perhaps is the fact that a number of countries are still trying to 
meet recruitment targets when it comes to their own police services to address some of their domestic security concerns. Uh, it may be that there are other domestic security concerns um, in the instance of our discussions around Papua New Guinea, for instance, about making sure that there are enough military personnel and whether or not there are enough to deploy offshore. So I, I think there are a whole range of factors that are balanced there that, that come into this discussion around barriers. So those small numbers and limited domestic resources one of the other issues in our research that I think links in quite importantly with the, the global direction of UN peacekeeping at the moment is looking around women's representation uh, in terms of that. And I think there are in a number of instances very good examples of where the Pacific has met a number of targets that the UN already has in terms of women's deployment. Uh, but equally, there are others where they haven't deployed women uh, uh, to missions and that needs to be looked at in terms of their, their broader um, commitment to UN peacekeeping. And a whole host of other issues around, I think, even access to information was something that we were looking at in terms of communication between capitals here in the region and New York, um, because as we've both both had a little bit of exposure to in the New York environment, uh, there is a need for substantive engagement with the UN bureaucracy to find out where these opportunities are. And that can be quite um demanding on resources, particularly if you have a small permanent mission in New York. Look, there are a lot of other barriers in our in our research, um, but I want to kind of uh, get to what are some of the things going forward that countries that have expressed interest in contributing to UN peacekeeping should be looking at? Um, and, and what sort of top of your list, Jen, in terms of our research, do you think is a priority for countries in the region if we are looking at sustainably uh, committing to UN peacekeeping going forward? Yeah, and I think that there is a real emphasis on sustainable contributions. You need to figure out how countries can do long-term rotations and deployments, and there needs to be long-term planning and particularly coordination with key partnerships. And this was something I, I think really was strong in our report, is that partnerships will be key for the Pacific to contribute to UN peacekeeping, whether that be bilaterally, regionally, even though this week that seems a bit dicey, um, or multilaterally. That assistance will really ensure that peacekeeping as endeavour will actually be beneficial for the country itself. So I think at the top of my list is paper is countries undertaking strategic reviews of peacekeeping and what it offers for them, but also what they can offer to UN peacekeeping, because there really does need to be a meeting of interest there if it is to be beneficial and sustainable for the countries involved. But do you have anything kind of else that you would say is at the top of your list? Well, look, I think one one certainly is this discussion around training, um, because we do see developments in Fiji, for instance, with the development of BlackRock. Um, we, we have heard from um, a, a few other countries about their interest in supporting peacekeeping training. We know there are activities in Timor-Leste at the moment around developing their, their peacekeeping training capability. But as you mentioned there, partnerships in terms of engagement uh, is really key. And I think if we are to look at it from um, the perspective of Canberra and perhaps Australian government engagement in these areas, uh, there are areas in the context of the Pacific step up where Australia could be engaging in a sustainable way to support some of these aspirations and look at how we could address um, or work with partners where it is within their interests and aspirations to address training and capability, uh, facilitating engagement in UN headquarters, you know, a number of these different recommendations mm. that we offer in the in the report. Uh, and I think that needs to be a, a conversation that needs to continue. Of course, that's going to be in the context of a number of other challenges within the region. And this is only sort of a very small portion of, of one area that may be available for uh, engaging. But nonetheless, I think something that really came out of our research is that there has been a real historical commitment from the, the region. There is a desire to contribute to sort of this, um, the international order and, and the way that the UN operates in this security environment. 
And there are opportunities there for partners who are interested in working with counterparts and doing so. But I think key to that is really listening and understanding what the needs are uh, in the first place and then moving beyond that. And I think that discussion is going to be really important going forward. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, I think that's a pretty good wrap up of our report and everything going I, on in the Pacific right now. Well, I, I guess the, the, the best thing we can do next is just tell people to, to check it out on the website. But thanks so much for joining us, Jen. No, thanks for having me back. Many in the West consider the ideological roots of communism to be an interesting historical footnote rather than a driver that shapes policy and actions in the modern world. Michael Shoebridge speaks to Charlie Lyons-Jones about the ideological roots of the Chinese Communist Party and how that influences their current behaviours. They also consider whether the CCP is seeking to export elements of this ideology to the world. Charlie, thanks so much for spending a little bit of time to talk about the Chinese Communist Party and whether ideology matters and whether it matters for our understanding of how the Chinese state operates, exerts power and has implications for Australia. So there'd be a lot of people listening that would think, well, talking about communist ideology and China is just old fashioned. Now, this is a technologically capable capitalist state that happens to be run by a single party. So isn't this just an outdated notion to spend your time thinking about ideology? So why does it matter looking at China and understanding it? And why does it matter to Xi Jinping? Well, the short answer to that question is, we might have forgotten about ideology once the Soviet Union was defeated at the end of the Cold War, but the Chinese Communist Party most certainly didn't. And let's take the example you mentioned of China being a technologically sophisticated and commercially astute country. That much is certainly true. But there was an orthodox Marxist reason for the implementation of market-oriented reforms at the third plenum of 1978. That came at the meeting of the sixth plenary session of the 11th Central Committee at 1981, in which Deng Xiaoping urged his carters to seek truth from facts and realise that China needed to undergo the capitalist phase of development in order to secure a path to communism. So even though China has people wear blue jeans and uh, they pay for things using WeChat and Alipay and is uh, commercially quite successful, the ideology of Marxism-Leninism, the historiography that comes with it, and the, the, the party organisation of the Cold War still remains, and the Chinese Communist Party takes it seriously, so I think we should too. Mm. So it sounds like ideology is one of the big reasons that China didn't just become that responsible stakeholder in the liberal international order. Absolutely. And I think uh, anyone who seriously looked at the debates leading up to Tiananmen Square between the, the neo-authoritarian faction um, led by some current members of the, the Politburo, uh, which argued that China should uh, become like Singapore or South Korea and uh, discard its ideology, well, that faction in the Communist Party lost quite uh, comprehensively. Uh, during the massacre at Tiananmen Square, Deng Xiaoping was an orthodox Marxist and an, and an ardent Leninist who sought to ensure that uh, the ideology that had uh, kept the Communist Party together from 1949 wouldn't dissolve with capitalism spreading across Chinese society. So this might be a good point for you to describe 
the way Leninism sees the world uh, with that idea of struggle, because I think that word struggle is so key to understanding Z and his program for China. Well, Leninist political parties see themselves as um, historical agents for change fighting against a uniquely hostile, liberal, democratic and largely capitalist world. And so when George Kennan uh, described the Soviet Communist Party as being a conspiracy within a conspiracy, that's what he meant. He meant that uh, a Leninist party saw the world as conspiring against it. And when the world is conspiring against you, you've got to ensure that those hostile forces can't infiltrate your Leninist party. And so what accompanies Leninism is a a Stalinist mode of governance. That mode of governance focuses on purging or cleansing the party of any hostile forces that manage to infiltrate within its ranks. Which is interesting because Z has done this through his entire tenure and consolidation of power, hasn't he? Exactly. It's been a consistent trend since uh, Xi Jinping took office, and indeed it's been a consistent trend since 1949. And I think seeing uh, the Communist Party in its totality and over the course of its uh, history since, well, the early 20th century really um, is uh, crucial to understanding the way uh, China is likely to behave in the world. Mm. People that read speeches and texts from the Chinese state, you know, things like when Xi is at his different uh, party congresses, uh, a lot of them uh, read through and discard all the boilerplate communist language and think, well, you know, they've got to say that because they're still the Communist Party of China, but I need to think about what they're really trying to say because they're not communists anymore. What do you think of that approach? Well, I think there's a lot of meaning embedded in some of these. Uh, seemingly uh, meaningless slogans. Um, Let's take uh, Mao Zedong thought, for instance. What does that mean? Well, Mao was a unique communist revolutionary. He didn't inherit a a society that was ripe for a a Marxist-Leninist revolution. China hadn't undergone capitalist industrialization. If we were to put it in Marx's own terms, China was an agrarian feudal society. So how does uh, Mao try and foment a communist revolution within China? Well, he goes to the countryside and uh, tries to uh, stoke revolution amongst the the poorest people in Chinese society. And so Mao's historiography was geared towards China being able to leap over the capitalist phase of development from agrarian feudalism onto industrialized socialism. And that was the great failure of the great leap forward. Uh, mm. because So when it comes to Z and Z's thought, which is being studied every day by every member of the party on their apps, um, being studied in camps in Xinjiang, how closely aligned to Leninist thought is that? Well, it's a good question because uh, there has been a sequence of innovations, quote-unquote, within uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's Marxist uh, vision for Marxism-Leninism. After Mao Zedong thought came Deng Xiaoping theory, the the thought of the three represents, and so on and so forth. And now you've got um, Xi Jinping's thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. Quite a mouthful. But what Deng Xiaoping did was introduce capitalist industrialization uh, to China. That largely continued. And Xi Jinping has now inherited a China that 
has undergone capitalist industrialization. And so for Xi Jinping, the question is, where does China go next? Do I continue with this uh, vision for orthodox Marxism that Deng Xiaoping f- uh, put forward and gradually strengthen the Chinese Communist Party's control over aspects of uh, Chinese society and political economy in order to bring China onto the next phase of Marxian development, which is industrialized socialism. And keep the party central. And keep the party central. Or do I take a leaf out of Mao's book and try and take a great leap over the industrialized socialist phase of development directly onto communism? That's a, a, a slightly bold uh, bid for Xi Jinping, and I, I'm unsure if he's willing to Do you think he's made that, that call yet? Well, it's, it, it's hard to tell, but I don't think he would want to make that call. Mm. So another way of thinking about this issue is, well, so does the Chinese Communist Party want to spread this ideology globally? My assessment is, well, they want a compliant world, but they don't want to turn every other country on the planet into a country with socialism with Chinese characteristics. But They want a permissive global environment. But I think it's different when it comes to their own state, uh, places like Taiwan, Xinjiang, and Xi's dreams and aspirations about Taiwan. How do you think about that? Well, I think you're absolutely right. It would be absurd to to think that uh, Xi Jinping is going to make Joe Biden a good Marxist-Leninist. But there are certainly aspects of China's political system that the Chinese Communist Party is working to export for example, the way the United Front Work Department and the Ministry of State Security monitor parts of the Chinese diaspora community uh, overseas, um, or indeed are critics of the Chinese Communist Party is a good example. And so the very real threat that we need to deal with is how do we stop those repressive aspects of uh, Chinese communism from... Uh, from reaching into our own from re- society. Exactly. Yeah. I suppose the extraterritoriality of the national security law in Hong Kong is a good example of that, uh, not not just aspiration to have a, a global reach, but the reality that, that that law has global reach. And if you get into a country that has extradition arrangements with China, that might matter to you. Well, absolutely. And it shows that the uh, Chinese Communist Party is uh, confident enough to enact such an extraterritorial law. But to go back to your uh, earlier point about whether the China's leadership wants to export Marxism-Leninism, I think the Chinese Communist Party has learnt a lot from the Cold War. The Soviet Union uh, learnt um, the hard way that there were fissures within the communist movement. Um, the most notable of which being the Sino-Soviet split. And those were born out of different interpretations of Marxism-Leninism. So even with a country like Vietnam, the Chinese Communist Party has a lot of trouble uh, trying to uh, unify the communist movement. So the best it can do is create a a world that is more friendly. Well, permissive and accommodating. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose this does, it's probably a good point to wrap up on, but there's a real conflict to my mind in in how you've described this and Z's idea of a 
win-win destiny, uh, common destiny for humanity uh, because uh, that defining ideology of struggle against a hostile world, particularly a liberal democratic world, there's no way of getting around that. And that's, that's something that has to be understood and uh, not missed when we, when we think about China. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, thank you so, so much, Charlie. I think you've made something that sounded old-fashioned and historical uh, very meaningful for today's world. Well, thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.